and welcome to episode 3 of the Dalek 6388 PropCast. I am Gavin Rymill, 3D modeler and illustrator on such quality products as the TARDIS and Dalek manuals, Evil of the Daleks animation and Doctor Who magazine. And I am co-creator of the YouTube series Terry Nation Army with researcher John Green, which has spawned this magnificent podcast. In this episode, we'll be taking a little look at Doctor Who's first New Year's special from the 1st of January 1966. What did the episode have to offer, if anything? And what are the chances of it being recovered? My usual co-host, John Green, sadly isn't here tonight, but we've got an extra special New Year celebratory lineup. We have our video editor and researcher for some of the Dalek 6388 videos coming in 2022, Stephen Brennan. Hello. Hello. Also joining us, we have an astonishing digital artist who has worked on countless Big Finish covers, not to mention BBC promos and SFX magazine. It is the insanely, disgustingly talented Anthony Lamb. Hello. Hello. And completing our quartet is the creator of the best Doctor Who podcast ever produced and the only podcast where I've listened to the same episodes multiple times from the Missing Episodes podcast. It is Tim Burrows. Hello. Hello. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you. None of the others wished me either of those things. I'm regretting that choice immensely now. I'd like to actually retroactively insert my New Year wishes. At what point does one stop saying Merry Christmas? Because we're, as we record, it is the 28th of December. I think until New Year, you can say Merry Christmas. We're still in the zone. Uh-huh. Maybe New Year's Eve. And at what point do you stop saying Happy New Year? Because there are people who I work with who I will see in February for the first time, they'll go, Happy New Year, and I just want them to f*** off. <laughs> That's too late. You've got, to, you've got to say Happy New Year by sort of the 12th of January, otherwise it's too late. Fine. Fine. Tim, I have been, I have been praying for another hard lockdown so that you'll be stuck at home and looking for another project so that I can enjoy Phase 2 of the Missing Episodes podcast. <laughs> it's very very good congratulations do you do you have i mean i'm not gonna push you but do you have future guests lined up yes well i'm kind of thinking that that me not putting out an episode is okay because i was knocking out podcasts after the cessation of terry nation army <laughs> so if terry nation army is still on hiatus then so can my podcast be <laughs> We're waiting for Ian Levine to do a record to drum up support for our return, but so far he's been quiet <laughs> on the subject. Do you want me to do it for you? Yes. I'll just sing a song about how I want more of my favourite Doctor Who productions. I've listened and watched both your episodes more than once. Not all of them, obviously, but some of them. What's what's wrong with some of them? There's, just, uh, there's a lot out there, you know, <laughs> like Star Wars and stuff. That's true. <laughs> You, you've been dazzling Twitter with your CGI work depicting scenes of 1960s Dalek stories, which are unparalleled in their beauty and realism. Are you working on more of those? Uh, I am. I'm starting on Dalek's master plan, and eventually I'll move on to Evil, which I'm looking forward to because of the Emperor, of course. And then I sort of actually want to go back and do Serial B, a.k.a. The Dead Planet, The Daleks, because... The Dead Planet, as everyone calls it, yes. Yes, I mean, that's far, it's the far better title. Yeah, I just need to revisit that and redo some of those shots now as well, because I've developed my materials and stuff. Why not animate scenes and put them out as missing episode content? Well, that's lots of work, isn't it? That's the main problem. The thing about animating is doing one frame of a few thousand pixels across 
it's really nice. You get lots of data because you can leave it rendering and you can use denoising on it to create a nice image. As soon as you add multiple frames, then the noise pattern starts to add little wiggly artifacts after you use denoising on it, which you sort of have to in many cases. So the main thing, getting my way of animating something, which I have done, I've just not rendered it to my satisfaction in terms of set recreation stuff. Um, the main problem is just getting that noise and artifacting down to a tolerable level. So, uh, but a new version of Blender's just come out with uh, CyclesX rendering engine, and that renders a lot quicker. So it might be, you know, a solution to that impasse might be forthcoming. A percentage of the final look is in Photoshop, so you can't add that to an animation. Well, you can. You can export a video from Premiere and import it into Photoshop as a smart object and then drag layers onto that smart object and arrive at something not unlike the still frame. It's, it's a bit clunky and it doesn't always work out as hoped, but you can certainly do a fair bit. I'm sure a proper person would do it in Premiere and make it look all nice in other ways, but I'm... Not proper. Yeah. Let's pretend I'm an idiot for a moment. What what elements of the images that you post are, are done in Photoshop? Often the ad elements added post-render are things like colour correction and lighting tweaks. A lot of the time when you have an old photo, you might notice that the shadows have a certain hue, a certain colour, as do the bright tones. Certain things pop more than they might do in a plain render, so I'll just add a lot of that sort of stuff in. Because without it, it tends to look a bit too crisp and clean and fake. I like to just chuck grunge at the render and try and remove the obvious CG-ness of it in any way I can. Well, they are remarkable. Completely oh, remarkable. I have another question. Stephen, how do you refer to Serial P? <laughs> <laughs> I refer to it by different names every day, just to bug people. I mean, I... It's the Daleks, and do you do you lot just bristle when you see an official BBC product calling it the Daleks? I mean, I, I I grew up calling it the Dead Planet, rightly or wrongly. I I always thought that the VHS was called that, and it's not. It's the subtitle of Cassette One, and Cassette yeah. Two is called the Daleks: The Expedition, isn't it? Um, yes. But my main issue these days, due to the nature of the conversations that I have about early Dalek serials is it's incredibly unhelpful, especially when Terry Nation's spin-off series is called The Daleks as well. So it's just not a very helpful uh, label, however correct it is. Yeah, that, the same is true for me, really. It, like, If I casually say The Daleks, how is someone supposed to know if I'm referring to the race of alien mutants or the story? It's the same problem with um, the 2005 serial Dalek. Again, it's there's there's no more correct term for it, but it's so damn unhelpful if you explaining to people that you're talking about the Dalek in Dalek and not the Daleks in the Daleks. Particularly when Doctor Who magazine insists on calling us the mutants, aka the Daleks, or a hundred thousand BC. Well, the AKA mutants is equally unhelpful for the same reason, isn't it? Because you got yes. the, I mean, for the same reason that I, 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 it's frustrating that people are determined to refer to episode one of the dinosaur invasion as the invasion. I mean, yes, it's technically correct, but it doesn't. Trying to talk to someone about the monsters in the invasion, and you have to clear up whether you mean dinosaurs or Cybermen, it's just not useful. But surely you're talking about the Web Planet episode <laughs> five. Surely that's yes. that's the invasion, isn't it? Good point. Good point. A lot of these problems would be solved if we were just conversing in print. You could use bold for one context and italic for another. Or just production codes. 
Just all talk about production codes. My production code knowledge is limited, I'm sorry to say. I'd need to carry around a cheat sheet whenever I was talking to anyone. There, there are a couple that stuck in my head. And I tried to learn, I tried to think of um, like mnemonics for all of them. Um, and I would like to repeat the ones that I think I learned, but I, I think I've got them wrong. So Do it anyway, it'll be fun. Well, yeah, I, go on. I, I think the the moon base is HH. I think you might be right, actually. That triggers a little memory. Because I thought well, I can I can say HH Holmes, the famous serial killer, lives on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> that was my route to that. The least likely season five serial to make you go, ooh, is the Ice Warriors. <laughs> and its production code is ooh. Nice. Oh, uh, more ooh. Is um, ooh. Death to the Daleks XXX? I think so. Yes. Because that is sizzling hot fun. <laughs> Excellent. I know Planet of the Daleks is SSS. Because the, the Nazis, I don't know. I, I was yeah. going to say it because Terry Nation coming back after his last story had the SSS in us. This isn't Doctor Who related, but I can only remember my older brother's birthday because it's the day after Hitler's birthday. <laughs> so in my head, what? I think... <laughs> that's, that's the only... His birthday is the 21st of April, but for some reason that can't lodge in my head. But Hitler's birthday has lodged in my head, the 20th of April. Yeah. I've got a similar thing. Um, my dad's birthday actually is Hitler's birthday. Oh! How <laughs> does everyone know? Where was your dad during the 1930s, by the way? Um, he was uh, non existent. He, he was born mm. in, I believe, 1945. That's a very convenient year of birth, isn't it? Hang on, no, your dad, your dad mysteriously appeared in 1945. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when. I don't know when Hitler died. Obviously, post-April, I believe. Good. Covered a lot of ground there. <laughs> One way I remember production codes is the uh, the uh, falsetto sock puppet theatre sketch about production codes. But the only one I can remember is the face of evil being 4Q. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's so weird that because you can always remember the ones at the beginning and the end. The War Games is ZZ and Spearhead yeah. from Space is AAA and then Planet Spiders is Triple Z and then Robot is 4A. That's an amazing coincidence. I assume it is just a coincidence because they skipped letters for convenience, didn't are they? We, are we missing eyes? Yeah, because three, because it's wrong. They're, they they're, they're either Kit Cars or for the Queen. I can't remember which. Are they episodes made in the Isle of Man? <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, car registrations skip certain letters for certain things, don't they? So certain car registrations are reserved for Kit Cars. Q can only be owned by the Queen. I they don't use because it's... I, I said Isle of Man, but it's not. It's just because it looks like a one, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's the same for the serial the, the production codes. They should use they... a serifed font to differentiate. <laughs> <laughs> or, or write it in letters, O-N-E. That'd be easier, wouldn't it? Does anybody else say italics? Anthony said italic. He's an idiot. Stephen, are you an I... italic man? I say italic, yes. No, I've Gavin. never heard anyone say italic. I say italics. You're wrong. Italics. And you're a grotesquely ugly freak. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a Twitter. That's another Twitter poll for you, Gav. 
Okay. <laughs> I'll get right on it right now. We'll have the results by the end of this podcast. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Another amusing font is Comic Sans. Sans. Okay, fine. Well, I've, other, I've heard people say Sans. What? Well, yeah, I mean, I, that, that would be sort of technically right linguistically, wouldn't it? Because we say sans serif. Well, I do. I mm. say sans serif. I, I probably do, but I'm aware that that's probably wrong. But I don't care. Um, that uh, hazelnut spread <laughs> that begins with N. <laughs> Nutella. Yeah. What about it? Uh, that's uh, that's Nutella. No, it's not. Oh, go no, away! You're just making stuff up now. No, I swear it's an Italian product. It's pronounced Nutella. Well, they've and lost control you... of their brand. They should <laughs> if have you go it. anywhere else in the world, they pronounce it Nutella, and it's only the UK that gets it wrong because we figure it's got nuts in it, so it's called Nutella. And as a result of our intransigence in correcting our pronunciation, even the advertisers have given up in this country. So if you watch a UK advert, they refer to it as Nutella in the advert, even though it is in direct contravention to what the company says about what its product is called. Wow. All right, what's the name of the, the shop that sells secondhand DVDs and electronics that begins with C and ends in X? I call it C-E-X. It's officially called sex. That's how it, that's actually how it's pronounced. But you can't wander down the high street saying, is, is there a sex around here? <laughs> I've just been to the sex shop. I've got some DVDs. <laughs> I'm looking for sex, everyone. Excuse me, madam. <laughs> you don't get this sort of content with that Reese Williams, do you? <laughs> 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 I tweeted a little scene recreation the other day of the the infamous toaster camera from Dalek's Master Plan, Episode 7, The Feast of Stephen. Incidentally, a happy Christmas to all of you at home. I looked for other examples of this kind of thing. The other example I could find that was in any way similar was The Honeymooners. And that finished a scene, a fictional scene, and the two characters in The Honeymooners broke from their scene, turned to camera and said, we wouldn't normally break character, but it's Christmas. But Hartnell doesn't do that. Hartnell is still the Doctor on the set of the TARDIS who notices the camera, which makes it... And Stephen and Sarah continue being Stephen and Sarah in the background, as far as we know. That's what's so extraordinarily weird about it, which is why I think it's quite clear that what's actually happening is that the Doctor is recognising that he's still being monitored by the Division. And so he's he's addressing the Division at home, who are also celebrating Christmas. And he's he's just sort of waving hello to Tech Tayoon, saying, I hope you're having a nice Christmas with your Ood friend. And what does the camera script say? It says, and incidentally, a happy Christmas to all of you too. And then Hartnell changes us. But it, the point is that it was an action that was decided in rehearsals. Yeah, it was it was greenlit by everyone. So all of the the myth that Hartnell improvised and Douglas Canfield is on record saying Hartnell caught them all off guard and that he he did it to camera completely spontaneously, which is it's just scandalous that he threw him <laughs> under the bus like that. It's in his script. Uh, Canfield's own camera script says it switches to a different camera and then it says something like Hartnell comes towards camera in mid shot and then Hartnell's line. So, you know, the camera <laughs> direction is all there. 
The other interesting thing on that telesnap is that Sarah seems to be laughing out of character as well. Yes. Like she's yeah. laughing laughing either to off camera or to herself. Another tantalizing moment of lostness. I just generally come away from that the ending of that episode, it feels like a sort of end of term school day, if you will. I think they're taking mm. everything a bit less seriously, even the script. That's why they're playing Connect Four in the earlier scene. <laughs> We had a big track. Were you allowed to take your big track into school? Though? It wasn't my big track. The school had a big track. Oh. Anybody who has a big track has inordinate amounts of wealth in their family because schools had big tracks. What is a wow. big track? Yeah, I also would like to know what a big track is. Well, a big track is a, a small tank. Um, maybe <laughs> Like an LOLO. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a small tank with wheels and tracks which had a a number pad on the top and you could command it to go forward 10 meters and it would trundle forwards and um you could go forward 10 meters and then hit the left button and, and do five and it would go left five meters and schools had them my primary school had one and wealthy families had them uh, and and for an additional 20 or 30 pounds, you could get a, a trailer which went on the back. First I've heard of this. There's an interview with uh, one of the people who are involved behind the scenes uh, with the with the Doctor Who animations, so probably one of Gavin's colleagues, and they ostentatiously are showing off their big track on a shelf behind them, <laughs> showing that they come from a moneyed family. So you watched uh, watched the reconstruction feast of Stephen today, Anthony? I did. did yes. You? How was it for you? I enjoyed it actually. There's there's a nice area of most Doctor Who episodes before the threat begins, uh, where they're just pootling about doing things and there's fairly low danger. I actually enjoy Feast of Stephen because it's pretty much that the entire way through. Although the film directors in the second half obviously get a bit shouty and that's a bit stressful. But until then, it is quite shouty. Yeah. Until then, it's lovely and. Also, the random thought occurred that Hadi and Barbara just tailed on for a little while. They would have got home anyway. Only a few stories before, they chose to dice with death to get back to London 1965. But they could have just held on, had a few more stories, and then got back to London by pure chance. That's the fascinating thing. The Feast of Stephen is the first time Doctor Who returns to contemporary Earth. After, oh, wow. Aside from being shrunk down, obviously. I do owe an apology to... The Feast of Stephen. Yes, you do. On a recent podcast, something who I claimed there was not one single joke in it. Uh, but <laughs> Stephen, Stephen is here to put me right because he spotted a joke. First of all, I haven't spotted a joke. <laughs> I've, I've, I've known about this for years. There's a joke hiding in plain sight, which is quite simply the police station part of the story is set in Liverpool slash the north of England. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Kingdom wants to repair the scanner. I. So, she... I. <laughs> the policeman says, the scanner, I. And this bit of terminology only shows up in this single episode yeah. of Doctor Who. And... When you point it out, it's really, it's really incongruous because it's never been referred to. <laughs> I did notice that line of dialogue, but it didn't strike me as a joke particularly. <laughs> it's it's the fact that the, the policeman repeats incredulously back the scanner eye as in saying oh the scanner is it eh yeah exactly yeah. 
e-bike. <laughs> mm, no, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't notice the policeman's intent in that way. I guess that's partly because we're missing so many of the visuals that we we miss the reactions. We have to take everything at face value. In preparation for this uh, podcast, I listened to the audiobook versions of the Feast of Stephen and Volcano, and in that, it's made quite clear that all the policemen have very exaggerated reactions to everything. Mm. Whereas it's obviously not clear at all from the audio. I, I want to discuss the uh, audiobook version of The Feast of Stephen a bit more because the bits in Hollywood, they're silly enough in the TV version, but on in the audiobook, they are ludicrous. The audiobook has Purvis doing the first half in the police station and has Gene Marsh doing the uh, second half in Hollywood. And they both do silly voices and they both narrate it very comically. Although Peter Purvis, God love him, I think he's a fabulous actor, but all of his Liverpudlian policemen sound like they're from Belfast. Is it bad? It's pretty bad, but in the kind of comedy way. It's when Jean Marsh has to do Ingmar Knopf and Blossom Lefebvre that it gets ludicrous. And in in the Hollywood part, they use all the most ridiculous sound effects and bits of music. Like, all all the music is, like, ten times more silly than the music in the actual story because they have the pie fight in the novelization. So it's just squelching. And like That's interesting. It's also squelching. It's very odd, the book, because it picks and chooses aspects from all the versions, from the draft, the camera script, and, indeed, the audio, because there are some unscripted jokes that are in the novelization. So presumably Peel was working from the audio as well as all the other sources. This police station part is a hodgepodge of draft and camera script where, for instance, all the stuff about pollution being toxic to Stephen and Sarah is in the book. But so is all the Mm. stuff about fish and ships, which is from the draft. When the doctor gets caught by the policeman, they have the discussion about him being a nutter outside the TARDIS. Mm. It's in Nation's draft, but it's moved in the finished episode to the interview room. Mm. And the man in Macintosh is there. <laughs> I, I don't know whether it would be more clear if the episode wasn't missing, but I think part of the reason the man in Macintosh is there is to present the idea that the police are dealing with a succession of wacky, confused, possibly deranged people. So first they get the man in the Macintosh complaining about his greenhouse being moved or whatever it is. <laughs> and, then, and then they get to white-haired old man who's talking about being a traveler in time and space so the idea is that the the doctor is just the latest preposterous lunatic that they've had to deal with and i don't know that that comes across very well in the audio version does the audiobook split in two per the target book the mutation of time and and so on yes it is it's split the same way is is the feast of stephen kick off the second book it kicks off the second book which is very funny because i can't think of any other books in the history of fiction that start with a comedy pie fight and end with (laughs) the destruction of a planet and harrowing (laughs) like a massacre (laughs) yeah i mean it's a weird tonal uh, introduction to the daleks master plan but then that's the daleks master plan all over isn't it as i spoke about on the missing episodes podcast uh, it the first half of Master Plan is a gritty James Bond in space thriller. Then you've got a wacky middle interlude and then offbeat episodes that never entirely return to any level of seriousness. And then episode 12 is the most depressing thing of all time. <laughs> the the, um, 
the pollution joke at the start of Feast of Stephen is quite yeah. it's quite nice. It's quite a nice joke. I know there's a nonsensical argument that it works for Volcano when it doesn't, but it's quite a nice joke, isn't it? The, the, it is. It's poisonous out there, and only the Doctor mm. can handle it. And it's Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's two jokes now, Cal. That's, yeah. that's another joke, yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, the pollution stuff was injected by Donald Tosh, I think. The, the, um, there is a line about pollution in Nation's yeah, Draft, but it's but not it's treated not as a serious... Yeah, it's not treated seriously. It's just the Doctor says, oh, there's some pollution outside. It's not, tre- it's not treated as a serious threat to Stephen and Sarah in Nation's Draft. Or indeed as the cliffhanger. No. The joke that Terry Nation wrote was uh, was that they they say something like, outside the ship is the most dreadful threat we could possibly imagine facing, and then there's a jump cut to a policeman. <laughs> best Terry Nation could do. So what about Volcano? This was Doctor Who's second attempt to do a sort of celebratory landmark episode following the Feast of Stephen the previous week. It's a very rare occasion where it signposts the actual date on which the episode is broadcast, which was the 1st of January, 1966. A lot of people say that Feast of Stephen is odd, but I think Volcano is more odd than the Feast of Stephen. Because the Feast of Stephen is its own self-contained thing, but Volcano is a part of the Daleks' master plan. The Daleks are in us. Yeah. It is a part of the narrative. And yet it's designed so that seemingly it can be taken out. Yeah, I thought exactly the same thing. It's as disposable as Feast of Stephen. Exactly. Whilst retaining all of the plot elements. I would disagree slightly there, because the Daleks discover that the Terranium core is fake in Volcano. If you remove that, you've got you've got a plot hole. But theoretically, couldn't you have that at the beginning of Golden Death? From a from a point of view of, of once the serial is completed, yes, it's indispensable. You're right. But the only relevant stuff in Volcano could be added to the beginning of the next episode. And all of the rest of the content landing on Tigus and the cricket match and so so in the structure of the episode you've got six minutes or whatever it is of it's Dalek's master plan again and then you've got three or four minutes of nonsensical cricket filler mm. and then you've got the Tigris stuff which is okay because it's it's the monk and everyone loves a bit of monkery uh, a, a bit of monkery and then it randomly ends up in Trafalgar Square and then it's Daleks again, is it, at the end? Yeah. Th- throughout all this, there's Daleks. They just cut back to the control room where there's a countdown. Yeah. <laughs> the whole episode is them cranking up the time machine. Yeah. They, they summon the time machine in a very early scene, and then for 25 minutes, the time machine arrives and they count down to its departure. The countdown used as a New Year's Eve countdown joke. But, yeah, I mean, there's literally nothing the, in the any The stuff with the, the ring scenes. is weird, although... He uses the ring in something else, doesn't he? For some a bit of magic, a bit he of. He does use it in the web planet. In the web yeah. planet, yeah. I mean, that's just bollocks, isn't it? Yes. He uses it a lot of times. He uses it to dehypnotize Dodo in uh, the War Machines. He uses it as barter in the Reign of Terror. I I, I, I like how Dennis Spooner is willing on his own lack of willingness to explain what happened. So. The Doctor says, <laughs> well, you see, the sun in this galaxy has a particular property, which, which means that if it fires through the ring, it can, it can undo the monk's um, deterrent, or whatever he says. And he's so dissatisfied with his own explanation that he, he has Stephen saying, yes, but what? And then he doubles down on his own stubbornness and says, 
and says, oh, <laughs> "It's remarkable." Mind your own business, you bird. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. It's remarkably daring the audience not to care. It's almost it's, a precursor to the sonic screwdriver when eventually that would come to yeah. be wheeled out to just get out of various situations. It's uh, fulfilling a similar plot area. All, all, all situations now. Hmm. Sorry, topical. Um, when the when the monk is locking and when the doctor later unlocks the TARDIS door, it's the same sound effect that was used for Katarina's death. Mm. Ah! Oh, wow. I just sounded like odd job finding a golf ball then. Did you oh, notice yes. that? Ah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's good. It's got some nice design work in it. I like the back projected lava. Yeah, that's really interesting. So just to explain that in that volcano set, like one whole half wall of studio is a back projected landscape, volcanic landscape of some of the model work that had been pre-filmed at Ealing. There is a half a second or a couple of frames of footage that exist of of the volcano effect. This I I can't. Perhaps you could do a Twitter poll, Gavin, on um, <laughs> <laughs> on why it exists. But there is definitely something, some original volcano footage that exists, albeit far less than a second. Wow. Yeah. So it it is interesting the makeup of the two episodes. Um, the overt comedy is by. Terry Nation, and that's fine. I'm happy with that. He's a comedy writer. But you'd expect a bit more of a lolcano in Volcano. <laughs> and all you get is a bit of a bit of the the warmth of the characterization of, of the monk and the doctor and they have a bit of interplay, don't they? And that's a happily retreaded, I'd say, by the writer and the actors. But a, a, apart from that, I think the cricket scene probably lost something in the in the realisation of it. I imagine that was far more humorous in Spooner's head. Yeah, it was. It was humorous. You're just wrong. Sorry. It Fine. Was very funny. <laughs> Fine. I, next time I shall listen to it through your ears and enjoy it a whole lot more. <laughs> it's just. It's. I. I don't. It's just funny because of how ridiculous it is. That's that's only really why I, th- I think that's where in, the in comedy has to lie. Funny. But it, yeah, it's just odd that they would revert back to doing a. Yeah. A, a, a completely disposable scene after going to lengths to say, no, this is Dalek's master plan again. Am I right in suspecting that a lot of this stuff was added because they had to expand the serial? So, of course, they wouldn't have needed to go to a cricket match. They wouldn't have needed to be diverted on a volcano. Yeah, no. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Volcano is all padding, apart from that one bit where they figure out the time destructor doesn't work. Would the the monk have been in master plan at all, were it not No. So the monk isn't even in the first two versions of Master Plan. So the first version of Master Plan is a six-parter, which is James Bond in space. The second version of Master Plan is a 12-parter, which doesn't have the monk in. Such as we know, I mean, there's probably other iterations um, in the Terry Nation vaults that we don't have access to. Stuff down John Peel's trousers. (laughs) Um, But by the third iteration of the storyline, where they're trying to work out how they can fill these episodes, they inject the monk into three episodes in the latter half of the Daleks' master plan. The Egypt episodes are a weird blend of farce and uh, and high drama. Bloody love escape switch, though. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's great. It's great, but it's there's some weird tonal shifts. But that's the problem with Butterworth and Hartnell. They're just having a whale of a time when they're, whenever they're in a scene together. And it's the same in Volcano. I, I find Volcano far more enjoyable as a piece of light entertainment than Feast of Stephen, which is desperately trying to be funny. 
Uh, I think Volcano is more amusing just because Hartnell and Butterworth are just playing off each other very nicely. I think it's I think stuff like the the Tyrus landing in the cricket match is so funny. But it doesn't really the... do anything with the cricket match. I've I've even been looking to see whether the cricket match echoes any test matches in '65, and it doesn't really. There was a well, it's hard it's hard to tell, but it doesn't really do anything with the cricket match. The whole cricket joke is that the Tardis materializes and everyone is fairly unmoved by it, and then it dematerializes and there's no consequence. I, I, it's almost it, as, yes, it's almost as if it's cheap filler for three minutes. <laughs> the, the commentators' names are irrelevant. Their styles are irrelevant. They're not aping commentators at the time. The cricket match seems to be irrelevant in that the scoreline seems to be fairly irrelevant, although I could probably pick out an interesting drawn test match in 1965. It's just, to me, it seems very weird. Oh, there is something about the commentators' names. At one point, they say, we're getting Ross to check the records to see if anything like this has happened before. Oh, McGuirta. Yes. No. <laughs> unless Ross <laughs> unless Ross McGuirta was a, 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 a test match scorer. It's just acknowledging the fact that they had a scorer who they would talk to in the Test Match Special Box, but it just seems to riff off nothing. It's just odd because they made a concerted effort for the first five minutes to go, Daleks Master Plan is back. <laughs> no, we're going to be Daleks, we're going to be Trantis, we're going to be Time Destructor. Yeah. And then they so have true. a weird four-minute <laughs> interlude yeah. of acknowledging that cricket exists. <laughs> but that's what's so funny about it. The very fact that it's not funny makes it hilarious. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm well, I've me. got many hilarious statements for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should introduce you to the works of Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> so th- I'm just looking at the script and the telecine sequence stock footage uh, just says an England test match with Australia. The commentators are Trevor and Scott. The landing of the TARDIS is off-screen. Telecine 36, sequence C, is a cricket scoreboard. We hear the TARDIS landing. Then Trevor speaks as voiceover. So they they discuss the arrival of the TARDIS off-screen. And then the only thing we actually see, there is a photo caption on camera 4A of a TARDIS on grass. So contrary to the beautiful shots in... Josh's reconstruction and the loose cannon reconstruction. You never see a TARDIS in any live action cricket setting <laughs> whatsoever. There's no humans around it, nothing. It's a photo caption, probably the two foot high model photographed on someone's back lawn. Do we have anything to inform what the commentator's box might have looked like? Yes. Like, did they build yes. a decent set for that? No. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a three foot wide cupboard. The plainest, most ordinary bare thing you can squeeze into the corner of the studio. You can see it in the overhead shot. There's a photograph, there's a colour photograph taken from the lighting gantry uh, of Volcano. And over on the right hand side, you can just see a small wooden desk. And that is the setup for the cricket commentators. They use a shot of Hamish or Dougal or whoever he is out of Terror of the Zygons, don't they, for one of the yes, you know, they do. cricket commentators. Presumably that's the right actor. I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, Loose Cannon are very hot on that. Well, they'll, they'll use the right actor whenever they can. But I, I wouldn't be disappointed by Loose Cannon's efforts. I mean, they are the, they are the forlorn hope 
first into the breach trying to make these things come alive. <laughs> Tim, what are our chances of ever seeing Feast of Stephen or more likely Volcano? Never going to happen. Cool. Shall we move on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm no expert, but I can summarise the the thinking, I think, as last published. You're no expert? No. Shall we get Paul Morris on? His fee is too high. That's (laughs) what you told me anyway. You said you couldn't afford Paul, so you'll get me. Uh, Well... Regarding episode 7, I I think it's very well known that episode 7 was never intended to be part of the story, in that it would never be packaged with the other 11 episodes for overseas sales. Therefore, a copy for overseas sales was never sent anywhere. There is a debate ongoing amongst the high brains uh, as to whether it would have been telerecorded and whether an instruction has to be sent for it to be telerecorded or whether it would be telerecorded out of habit. But Mm. that's a pretty nuanced and niche debate as to whether a copy could possibly have been made 55 years ago. So as to whether that will ever turn up, I I would say the answer is probably not. But people get excited at the the mere possibility of it being telerecorded. Is there paperwork that shows what their process is for the telerecordings? Because one might imagine that an order would come down this week's Doctor Who to be telerecorded. It seems like an extra piece of work mm. for them every single week to list each one of this seven-parter or 12-parter. And then added to that, the idea that somebody in charge of that order form process specifically had the knowledge required to make sure that episode seven wasn't done it just feels like an extra step of work that in a rapid turnover fairly automated process that that they probably were just scribbling yeah just do master plan just do whatever good question i don't know i think paperwork does exist as instructions to telerecord but um you're saying it seems like a step too far but the bbc then if not now, it was extremely bureaucratic. Mm. And it's thanks to these oodles and <laughs> files and files of paperwork that Richard Bignall spends half his life up to his knees in that we can find out these, these amazing details. But I don't know. And that's the debate, and the experts won't agree on it. I think Paul Venezes is hopeful that it might have been telerecorded. And I think... Well, I won't put a name to him, but the other the other expert who's who's often commenting in public says it didn't. It, it wouldn't have been telerecorded. Anyway, that is only a step to say it might have existed. But mm. if it was telerecorded, then multiple copies wouldn't have been struck from the negative, and no. it, it wasn't distributed at all for potential overseas sale, and it was never intended to be sold for overseas sale. So we can leave episode seven as an academic exercise in whether it might have been telerecorded. But the chances of it turning up are slim to zero. I mean, let's not forget, we talk about the chances of anything turning up. And a missing episode hasn't been discovered now for 11 years this year. Hmm. Assuming um, that the last two discoveries were Galaxy 4 Episode 3 and Underwater Menace Episode 2. So Hmm. it's 11 years since an episode was actually discovered. uh, Enemy and Web being discovered around then or before then. So the chances of anything turning up now are remote. Before we talk about Volcano, it's worth pointing out that this is probably probably approaching the last knockings now of 
private collector discoveries now, and I think they're all reaching a certain age for a hobby which is well past its heyday. Private collectors are in their 80s, 70s and 80s in in the most of cases, and I I think a number are falling off the perch. And Mm. so either their collections will be understood and the contents will be known, and there may be a chance of rescuing things out of them, or they'll be falling off the perch and their collections will be going into landfill sites. Horrifying. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a situation which can't go on indefinitely. And so, you know, you never know. But, you know, in the next five or ten years, if, if, if nothing else turns up, that's it, pretty much. Apart from discoveries of misfiled things in the BFI or whatnot. Hmm. As for episode eight of Dalek's Master Plan, well, okay, nothing's turned up for 11 years, so everything is highly hypothetical. A copy was struck and sent to Australia as everybody knows, and after lots of umming and ahhing from the censors in Australia, it wasn't purchased. Hmm. Now, in the 1970s in the UK, it is known that a large number of episodes of the Daleks Master Plan were in existence. Episode 2, because we've got it. Episodes 3 and 4, because they existed to be taken for clips for Blue Peter. And Mm -hmm. episodes 5 and 10 existed in either the Australia or the UK at some point after 1975. Mm. So that's five episodes out of the 11 existed. So you become slightly hopeful that the remaining six, there seems to be a a reasonably good chance that they might have existed in 1970s England. And if five survived, then, then why not the other six? And how those episodes existed is up for debate. Is that not a a firmly established series of stories as to how we got each of those back? Absolutely not, no. Episode 2 was a copy that was taken by Francis Watson, who was a former BBC employee, and the provenance of that episode is debated. I think (laughs) the most reasonable prima facie idea would be that it was taken from the shelf at Enterprises and given to Francis Watson in his capacity as an engineer. I can't quite remember. If Reese was here, he'd be able to give chapter and verse on what Francis Watson's role was. But I've also heard it said that that the episode two was a rejected copy. Uh, An overseas sale rejection. It was deemed not suitable for broadcast because of some technical reason. And so another, another copy was struck, which seems strange considering the high quality of episode two. Hmm. I think, without putting words in Paul Venezes' mouth, but I think that's what he thinks happened. But hmm. um, it seems logical that it would be a, an Australian return of the, the unbought clip. Episodes 5 and 10 is the Mormon church mystery that they may have been found in the basement of a Mormon church, along with a, a selection of other films, one of which was a black-and-white telerecording of a series called Warship, which... John Preddle would argue is is possibly from Australia as well as episodes 5 and 10. Now, if it was a Mormon church, then that's too in the dim and distant past to work out whether it was a Mormon church or whether it was a, a BBC property that was that, that was adjacent to a Mormon church that was that, that was taken over by mm. the church. But that is too in the dim and distant past to truly understand where they came from. Hmm. And the provenance of episodes 3 and 4 again, is to be guessed. Now, we know that the ABC sent back from Australia an, a large number of films in 1975, thanks to the brilliant Australian researcher Damien Shanahan found the paperwork at the ABC. 
and Dalek's master plan wasn't amongst those. But it's speculated that when Australia didn't buy Dalek's master plan, which, in brackets, prevented anybody else from buying it because of what was called the Commonwealth Quota, a, a major Commonwealth country would have to pay the vast majority of the fee to pay off equity and so on. And then the, the, the smaller Commonwealth countries could get it for far less. But because no one, none of the big countries bought it, then none of the smaller countries could afford it. So it was never sold on once Australia rejected it. So the theory is that when this print was rejected in Australia, it came back and episodes 2, 3, 4, 5 and 10 existed in the UK in the 70s. So on that basis that it's an Australia return, then, then maybe the other six episodes could exist. Uh, this chap, Damien Shanahan, He's of the opinion that it's likely or possible that the copy never left Australia. And what would happen in a nutshell is that when a print came in to the country, it would be signed out of customs and, and lent to the ABC. And then once they agreed to screen it, then it would remain in the ABC. But if they rejected it, then it would be sent back via this customs facility that they call a bond store. Now, Damien Shanahan, who I've been trying to interview for well over a year, and he's a very nice chap, and he's agreed in principle, but due to one reason or another, hasn't been able to commit, that believes that this copy may still be in the descendant of this original Bond store. Wow. And what has happened is, through his detective work, he has traced it from the original location of this Bond store, which was directly adjacent to the ABC offices. and through changing facilities and properties over the years, this Bond store, of which ABC would have had a part and other studios would have had another bit that they just sign in and out, materials in transit, that they believe that this has now ended up in a warehouse uh, somewhere near the airport in Melbourne, I think. And the, the property within this store has changed and changed and changed, and it's ended up being lumped in with other materials which are deemed sensitive to access and so access to this area is now verboten because of of national secrecy rules or something like that wow. <laughs> wow and and so they think and again this is somewhat more hearsay and accounts which i may be slightly jumbling or misremembering and don't want to put names to in case i get told off slash sued although I am the guest, and you have failed to control me. So, um, Read the small print in my contract. <laughs> that at some point, the Dalek Master Plan films were known to coexist for some reason alongside a copy of Deep Throat. And Deep Throat was spotted in this place relatively recently, you know, like in the last 20 or 30 years, relatively recently. And so it's hopeful that these episodes still exist there is it known who's been in there and seen it adjacent to deep Throat? not by me but it's, yeah it's just odd that you'd go in there and go yeah they were there next to deep throat <laughs> yeah, especially if there's potentially <laughs> sensitive material in there i went in looking for government secrets i i saw two things i saw dalek's master plan 12 and deep throat it's amazing <laughs> uh, you couldn't make it up uh, did you get the did you get the plans to uh area 51 no, but Deep Throat <laughs> and Dalek's Master Plan 12. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there likely to be any difference uh, in terms of... Deep Throat and... 
Deep Throat and the Destruction of Time. <laughs> we'll, we'll all, we'll, we'll all recognise the first few frames of Deep Throat. For sure. but, but in terms of if, if a print of Master Plan was returned from Australia, will it is will it be possible to tell uh, whether it's an Australian print or one that has always been here? Not by virtue of the content of the episode. But in terms of labelling or film, uh, May, I don't know. Um, presumably, that w- presumably they would only ever get any modifications if they were broadcast. You would get um, film leaders spliced on. So if, if if Australia never passed it and broadcast it, then I presume it would be an untouched print, wouldn't it? Well, it certainly wasn't edited by them because it was deemed uneditable, so that they could broadcast it. But yeah, I don't know about leaders. I'm not sure that every print that has been identified as an Australia return had ABC leaders on it. But yeah, I, I don't know. And the content wouldn't be edited, whereas editing has been evident on returns from other countries and the countries identified by virtue of the editing. The main reason I was wondering about that is if a number of episodes are potentially still in Australia, if the ones that we have were once in Australia, why would they have been separated? Well, there is a question as to whether Australia would have duplicated its own episode because, and you'll have to speak to one of the experts, a Mr. Predle or someone similar, as to when, when the microwave link started up. But before the microwave link started, then they would be literally bicycling prints between regions so that they could broadcast them and that they may have wanted multiple copies for that. I mean, I have heard and verified speculation that there may be much more in this Bond store than just Dalek's master plan, but but I haven't had an explanation of that yet. But, it, you know, it's a, a reasonably reputable person who, who, who says that. So the last communication I had with Damien about this and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him to, to come on to the podcast and talk about it was... Um, I said something along the lines of, I'd love an update on this Bond mm-hmm. store situation. And he said... He'd love an update too, and it's been decades worth of work. Mm. So the situation isn't resolved. They've got good reason to think it may be there. In either scenario, if it's the Australian return, then we know there were five episodes in the UK in the 1973 of which we have. And so it seems relatively hopeful or uh, that you know if a private collector has something it, m- it may well be a, an episode of Dalek's master plan and if if a, co- a full copy exists in australia then you know that's that's all to the good in that there may be other copies in the uk that, that account for the three episodes we have and the two episodes that existed in the 1970s that we don't have and all of that is under the umbrella of nothing has turned up for 11 years and mm. we'll probably all die wondering something to look forward to there's a bit of speculation on broadcast, uh, John Preddle's brilliant, wonderful site, which says that, well, perhaps Enterprises struck copies for sale to other countries in anticipation of Australia accepting the sale for their broadcast. So as per every other serial, that multiple copies would be struck once one of these major countries, namely Australia, accepted the sale then they would dispatch copies to other countries uh, which may account for copies that we have so it's not impossible that eight episodes are out there somewhere but you know it's all under the umbrella of a quarter of my life has gone by without any more missing episodes turning up 
Uh, it's interesting uh, that point about whether they'd have struck multiple copies without any actual orders. Mm. Because it kind of loops back to something I was sort of wondering about the question of whether Feast of Stephen would have a telerecording done for no good reason. And the only thing interrupting that process of just telerecording everything and pick the bones out of it later would be if the cost of telerecording was so expensive and that it would be such a waste of film that they would never allow an episode copy to be made if there was no chance of it being sold. But it's done but in a then, separate, you know, it's not, it's not done as broadcast. It is a separate process. Yeah. So the videotapes have to be taken once they're broadcast or before they're broadcast or whenever to another area to be done. And presumably they wouldn't have automatically put all the tapes in a pile and just sent them off to telerecording. Presumably they wouldn't have done that. You know, they wouldn't have, right, that's broadcast, throw it in the wheelbarrow, take it next door for telerecording. Hmm. I'm guessing that there would be a process that they would go back to wherever they are stored and then ordered up for telerecording. But I'm just guessing. I don't know. We know that episode 8 was sold overseas and that episode 7 wasn't sold overseas or attempted to be sold overseas. Right. So you'd have to you'd have to assume that there is a conversation between the production office and Enterprises to say, do not try and sell episode 7. It makes no sense. There needs to have been mm. a conversation. But Gav, your question is a good one and I don't know the answer. And indeed, the leading experts in the field don't agree. Why were no copies sent to Africa? Because Australia didn't buy it. Because of this Commonwealth quota system. Right. So Australia would have subsidised the copy. The major broadcasters, I think there were three or four, but Canada or Australia, for instance, would be expected to pay the lion's share of the cost of the fees. And so it was quite a nice system, if you like, that once these major countries had paid the lion's share of the set fee, that the smaller Commonwealth countries, so in Doctor Who's case, you know, Ethiopia, Zambia, Sierra Leone, and so on, would just pay the very last tranche of these uh, of this payment to complete the cost. And so, yeah, if a major broadcaster didn't buy it, then nobody else could. You mentioned Canada. If Australia didn't buy it, is yeah. there a chance it would be pitched to Canada? Canada didn't option it until the 1970s, I think. Yeah, it was Australia or bust. So the Bond store, who would have authority to go in it? If we found out that Masterplan was in there, who has the authority to go up to this Bond store and say, Hi there, I believe you've got Dalek's Masterplan in with your secret documents? I don't know. The, the Some sort of Australian governmental body. The Guardian of the Solar System. That's the level of authority you need. The Guardian of Bond. Barbara Broccoli! <laughs> Barbara Broccoli, yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously it's a diplomatic sort of level, perhaps, or it just needs someone who knows someone who can who can have a sensible mooch around this place, but don't know. Presumably the idea that it's this Im impenetrable diplomatic top-secret store is a little bit hyperbolic. And the reality is that there is an infrastructure of people that are actually allowed in on a daily basis. Have they all signed an official Secrets Act? I mean, if you want access to your copy of Deep Throat, there must be someone... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm assuming that any common sense approach has been tried by Damien. But you're saying, have they tried phoning them? <laughs> have they tried asking? Surely they just have to ask the right person. Um... Is it Australia or New Zealand where they're all buried under a football field? 
uh, New Zealand. Yeah, it's yeah. very near the Zealandia Nature Reserve, which I've been to. Is Master Plan in that football field? I didn't dig it up and have a look. No, it isn't. Although the Crusade shouldn't have been in that football field either. <laughs> so yeah, so the countries ended up with episodes that they didn't buy, but they were sent the episodes because it was assumed they would. So New Zealand received the Crusade as part of the standard package, and I forget what the span of episodes are, but they didn't buy it, along with Dalek Invasion of Earth and maybe another one, I can't remember. I think the web planet was the other one. Yes, I think you're right. The Reign of Terror was found in Cyprus. Cyprus didn't purchase the Reign of Terror. Now, it's thought that it was just sent there as the standard package of episodes. But again, Paul Venezes has offered a, a different opinion that it, it was sent there as a, a, a hub to be sent on for sales elsewhere. Uh, but these are different situations to the Daleks Master Plan because the Daleks Master Plan wasn't bought initially by Australia and so it was never an option to send it anywhere else. A, a lot of the 2013 mega rumour, or whatever it was called, was about the idea <laughs> that episodes would be sent on in the hope that eventually they would be purchased again and that's why there were rumours that Power of the Daleks was found in Africa which mm. none of the research agrees with, but the research only relies on evidence of what happened, and we're talking about an extraordinary circumstance that hasn't been proven to be happened, and therefore nobody went looking for these episodes where they were rumoured to be found, until somebody went and purportedly found the episodes lying on a shelf. But none of this would apply to Dalek's master plan, because there would have been no speculative sending on of these episodes because they were never available to be sold in the first place because the finances didn't happen. Well, Tim, that was so interesting. Thank you so much for imparting all your amazing knowledge. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Thank you also to Stephen and Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Good luck for 2022. And well done for making it to the end. See you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Ooh, they're sweaty. It is so tight. Good content. Good content.